because because um, I, I don't want us to, to waste a lot of time, and I still want to get you out on a Galilee hour. But uh, I, I think what uh, what I'd like to do tonight, now in the second hour, is um, kind of summarize, if I can, uh, where we're at with the last hour. Um, and I'd like to go around the room and hold you to a a 20-second deal like to do on the radio when you call in. And then we're done with that. We're just going to tie that in a bow and leave it for a couple of weeks. And I'd like to move into the, the next topic, which, as uh, as Ken mentioned at the end, what, what's what's the role of the rabbis in our walk? What's the role of halakha? And I'd like us to flesh that out. And I hope we can do it as... Uh, Honestly and openly, as as we did in the last hour, it was great, and that's that's what it's all about. So, let me see if I can summarize. Um, there seems to be some uh, some sufficient argument uh, for separating. There seems to be some legitimate alternative explanations there which we haven't heard in the past, that we might want to examine. So it's, it's obviously left to each individual, as all the commandments are. Um, but I would ask us to consider that we not just ignore it, as I was doing. My practice was to simply ignore the command because I couldn't figure it out, or ignore the command because it didn't seem to apply to me. Well, the, the reality is that I think everyone in this room would agree all of the commands apply to me, all of them, at all times. And that's the reality of the Torah walk, is that we recognize that. And if that's the case, then we need to do something with this command. It's three times. So um, that's what I'd like to leave you with from my side, is do something with it. Be able to have a, a good response to the, to the command, instead of just ignoring it or brushing it off and saying, well, you know, it doesn't apply, that, that's, that's, that's not what we're looking for, okay? So we're going to look for, instead, a good response. So now I want to go around and I'm going to ask you in 20 seconds, and I'm going to time it because I'm just going to move on to the next guy. So don't get long-winded on me because I'm going to cut you off. I just want you to express to me where you stand on this on these three verses that speak of separation. Are you going to separate? You've been separating and now you're even more convinced. You haven't separated and now you're really going to think about it. Or you think it's a bunch of hooey and you know, I just you know I just want to get a level set, see where we're all at. And then maybe in a couple of weeks, you know, we'll just raise the, the, the twenty second deal again and ask you where you're at. Okay? So you're up first. Got it. Ken? I very recently just started uh, a mistake when we ate Mexican this past Sunday, but uh, just started with separation, and I, I, I absolutely cannot uh, argue the fine arguments have been made that I've heard here, so I'm, I'm looking at complete separation. Good. All right. I haven't been to a restaurant in about a month and a half. I probably will not go back to any but two restaurants in Charlotte. I can affirm to, I'm using separate dishes as of now, Baruch Hashem. 
um, it really does make you separate. And that's uh, one of the best things I've learned. Is to, is to <coughs> certainly, certainly separating you out even more than just practicing Messianic Judaism. Ditto. Yeah, yeah same, same house. Yeah, same house. Isaac. Um, I've been separating for just under six months, I guess. And uh, I enjoy it. It's a, it's a different thing. It still is difficult sometimes trying to plan out your meals. And all of a sudden you go to grab something and make coffee. Like, oh, I'm going black today. But I think it's a, it's a great thing. It's also been an awesome testimony for me working at a restaurant. Because they, they all know, oh, well, I, I can't have that. And That's cool. Lots of, lots of conversations. Amen. Gotcha. Um, I have been separate from kind of a do my best approach. Um, and of course, when things didn't go quite the way I planned, I just kind of ignored it. Gone. I saw it more as a testimony than necessarily so much as a pen. Um, pondering the possibility of rethinking that now. Um, more seriously, but um, yeah, I mean, I guess in some sense there is a certain nicety to it, and that it does get you to, um, it does almost give <coughs> variety and difference. I don't know, for me, it's almost expanded the things that I eat, ironically, because it gets me thinking about a whole bunch of different foods as meals that I never would consider. Exactly. Jen. Okay, uh, let me again preface I just uh, I feel such a I feel because of my background I was involved in the occult before I came into the church so I'm very cautious about anything Kabbalistic or anything from a mystical so I want to stick with the the shot I want to stick with the literal Um, so for me right now I think what the alternate interpretation that I shared that's kind of where I stand so uh, uh, but in terms of Adhering to the more stringent halakha, the presence of others, and respect their, their how they you know, walk out and they obey this obey this commandment. So, so since the uh, since the, the the kosher seal does not speak of boiling a mother's the kid in the mother's milk and so forth, uh, or cooking. Uh, a kid on the same day that his mother is cooked. Um, do you have any practical way that you're going to make this come about in your life right now? I think, uh, I think I'm obeying it by. I think, I think the whole verse is allegorical in that sense. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's not about the cooking at all, it's, it's allegorical in the sense of taking the life of a cat and its mother. Okay. Right. Well, I'm still, I'm still digging. Oh, we all are. Well, I have been separated before, but because of this uh, discussion, it's caused me to look at the scriptures a little more deeply. I can see how it really prefaces the fact of a separateness between God's people and the rest of the world. It really implies what what I believe James (coughs) is trying to get at that faith without works is dead. That unless you have works of Torah, unless you have a covenant relationship with Hashem, uh, your faith is not alive. So for me, it has certainly caused me to look at Scripture in a new light. Good. Praise God. So we've got a noodler. Yes, sir. Uh, <coughs> separated. I guess about a year and a half. 
board, even though I'm rushed around today. Okay. Cool. Yes, sir. Uh, two comments. One is, and I know, I hope we all know, regardless of our where we personally end up on how we walk this particular command out, I, I know it goes without saying, but just says clearly, <coughs> has nothing to do with your personal stand with God or Amen. your personal level of holiness Amen. or whatever. That's exactly right. So so there we cannot one separates, one doesn't, we can't, you know. So I, I know everybody knows that, but it just yeah. like a um, we're, Yep, but that is good. And it is good to, to mention. Uh, the other thing too that that I, I would I would offer is when it comes to any commandment in Torah, I think we should I mean, the blanket statement here is I think we should only be keeping Torah if we truly believe that's what we're supposed to do. I wouldn't keep Torah simply to be a witness because we keep Torah because we believe it's the right thing to do, or we don't. Because God said to do it. Right. And if we end up being a witness because of it, praise God. Because because part of part of the problem I have with the witness thing I see this a lot in, in, in other, you know, uh, other expressions. Yeah. yeah, where they they will wear zitzit, or they'll keep biblical kosher, or they'll do things. But when you actually start talking to them, they're not doing it because they really have a conviction that it's what the Word of God says they should do. Right. They're doing it because they want to witness to Jews. Yeah. And and that to it me is. is false pretense. You bet. And, and, it, and it is one of the reasons why there is such a groundswell of dissent in Orthodox and other Judaisms against, quote-unquote, Messianic stuff. Yes, sir? Um, regarding the whole halakhic thing with the whole community, where you have somebody where they start separating first, and then, as I'm not sure if it was a halakhic thing, I'm just kind of dabbling around here, but then other families start to as a community, you all want to be on the same page so that they don't see you eating a cheeseburger or you don't see them eating a cheeseburger. And then, so you'd say, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but I'm just kind of going, dabbling into the whole block thing where if there, as a community, one community is doing it, how does somebody that's attaching themselves to that, yeah. they want to fall into that whole block thing, that way they're not causing another brother to fall. Sure. So how do you... Yeah, that's, a, you, that's an excellent question. Um, and, I, and I think that uh, I think that's where the whole... Living in a community comes to play. And to tail off of what Greg said, um, I mean, I think that this entire room is filled with um, exemplary men who are leading exemplary families. Amen. Um, even to the point of like what Isaac was commenting on, um, the fact that a few families, starting with one, felt like this was something important to them a year and a half ago, and the entire community essentially said, Okay, when we get together for lunch on Shabbat, we're sticking to dairy only. That makes it complicated sometimes. It does. To make food, to prepare food, to think about those things. And yet, um, the entire community did it without complaining, without questioning, and the, without arguing. And the entire community, to your point, also did it without a command from on high, you know, from the quote-unquote 
elders to say, you must bring dairy, don't bring any meat. Didn't, that didn't happen. It was strictly a love for one another. And, you know, I, I really want them to be able to eat something. You know, let's just do something dairy. You know, or, and I've noticed we've gotten more desserts of late, too. So it's not a bad thing, right? Even if people argue um, from the perspective of, like Paul, the kind of the, there's two sides to look at this, it's both are okay. Um, I think that, that all of the group people in this community have also made Paul very proud in the sense that they have fulfilled his very explicit command, which is do love your neighbor. Amen. And, you know, both in not condemning or judging them, but also in terms of <coughs> not leading them to stumble. Yeah. Isn't it amazing that in our walk and in our, in our walk with the Lord, we've come from don't judge your brother and thinking that it has something to do with whether or not you should call him on the fact that he's having an affair on his wife, to now not judging your brother, and we're concerned about, you know, whether we're going to embarrass him because he's having a piece of steak with a piece of cheese on it. I mean, we've really come a long way now. So, I mean, life has changed, you know. So, yes, final comment, then we move on. Well, so just to pick up on this idea of, you know, the fact that we prefer one another. So, you know, the, the, I hope that we we give a good response and a good answer to your question, Isaac, because I think it's a good question. When someone comes into the community, and and I don't want to put Ken in there yet because he hasn't he hasn't come on Shabbat and he's not coming on Shabbat. I, I can use you, and I'll, I'll go ahead and pick on you because you're fun to pick on. Um, but I, I want to make sure, Ken, that I you are you are without question a member of this class and I'm thrilled to have you with us but if someone asks me if you're a member of the community I say no so far because you don't come on Shabbat and on Shabbat is when we learn together and we grow together and we listen we read the scriptures and we you know we practice that uh, Shabbat type stuff together um, so I'm not trying to diss you in any way but uh, when we talk about the community I'm, I'm specifically talking about those that come on Shabbat and uh, and I, I, this is me. This is not from the scripture necessarily, or uh, from any any orthodox perspective. But um, I seem to be the de facto mouth for the community because I mean, it normally meets in my home, and I'm normally the mouth that starts out the the shakarit service. But um, my desire is that if people come and desire to pray, we need to let them pray. I think the scripture speaks of having non-believers in your midst and if they pray and see weird stuff, they're going to think you all are weird and God is just a sham and they're going to leave. That's a paraphrase of the apostolic scriptures if you don't know where it's from. 
read from Matthew until you get to the maps and you'll find it. Well, the kind of weirdness I'm the kind of weirdness I'm talking about is not the kind of weirdness that Paul was talking about. Um, but on the other hand, if they sense a loving community and one that's not um, condemning, um, looking down their nose at at, uh, at visitors and stuff, but rather are inclusive, you're you're coming in the door, and we want you to learn about God because that's what we're all about here. We just want to learn about God and what He wants us to do now that He's saved us. And if, you have, if He hasn't saved you, you might want to talk to Him about that. Um, whether you're coming from the Baptist to the Presbyterian flavor, God's got to have something to do with that. You know, whether you start asking or He starts pushing or whatever it is, you know, we don't care. Bottom line is, there needs to be some kind of interaction because you need a relationship first. After we have that relationship, there ought to be a desire to be with God's people. And we are God's people. So while you're working with us, we're going to walk out our faith. You've got some, some pioneers with the arrows in their backs that are, are normally the point guys. And they're out there, and uh, they're the ones that hit the minefield. And, you know, blow off the leg, and they're hurt, and they walk through it, and the rest of us, the, yeah, the rest of us get to follow, you know, in a more peaceable fashion and, and learn from those, from those things. And it's, you know, praise God, it's not just one family. You know, it depends on what area of halakha or faith or whatnot you're walking down. And uh, that's the beauty of our community, is we deliberately are not trying to say, this guy's in charge, that guy's in charge. We're not. We're all walking it out. And um, I, my concern is for men, because it's different than women. We not only need to learn it and do it, but we need to teach it. It's as simple as that. That's what this class is all about. If there's somebody that says, that if something happens, whether it's halakhic, faith-based, emergency, whatever, somebody's got to be in charge. Somebody's got to stand up. Somebody's got to take the reins, the bull by the horns, as it were. It ought to be one guy in this class. If we all happen to be there, you know, all bets are off. I'm going to do it because it's my house, or I'm, I'm loud, or whatever. You know, or he's going to do it because, you know... Um, Name something. He's, he's, <clears throat> he's better looking than me. You know, whatever it may be. But if, if we're out in the community, if we're out in the world, we ought to be the ones to stand up. So I don't think I've ever heard, you're not separating yet? Man, I mean, haven't you been coming for three months? What are you waiting for? I, I've never heard that. <laughs> That's just not the, the, the tenor of this, of this community. By, by example, and then somebody's going to ask a question eventually. Yeah, you know, you know, are are you John are you? The first person actually I ever heard about doing the separation, and I just kind of pushed him. Off. <laughs> you have cheese with your burger? You got an idiot. What do you? You have no idea what you're missing. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I am. Uh, I am reading from uh, Simanim. This is the uh, Shulchan Aruch, Code of Jewish Law. And I'm in uh, chapter 47. The method for rendering utensils used for wine of idolaters fit for kosher uh, or for kosher use is dependent on the type of utensil and its use. 
If they are utensils that are used to hold wine for only a short time, and the non-kosher wine did not remain in them for a 24-hour period, the halakha regarding such utensils is that whether they are made of leather or of wood, glass, stone, or metal, if they're not coated with pitch, one washes them well with water three times, and they are permitted. Regarding utensils that are made to hold wine for storage, that is, they are designated to hold wine for at least three days, the halakha is that even though the utensil belongs to a Jew and the idolater stored forbidden wine in it for only a short time, nevertheless, it must be rendered kosher to the irui, or the pouring process. This process is accomplished as follows, and it says the utensil is filled with water to overflowing. It should remain standing this way for a period of at least 24 hours, 24 consecutive hours. Afterward, one pours out the water and replaces it with a second filling of water, and it is to remain standing this way for another period of at least, sorry, Hebrew book, 24 hours. Then he does the same a third time. The three 24-hour periods need not be consecutive with one another. One may wait between them. However, even if the water remained standing in the utensil for a number of days consecutively and he did not pour it out, it only counts for one 24-hour period. And it goes on to give you very intricate specifics on how to deal with, literally, everything in life. When was this written, and what made it come to pass? 1500. It's 500 years old. Why then? Why not six days after the mountain? Three rabbis, two, uh, two rabbis, three opinions. <laughs> yeah, the medieval rabbis started to write all this down, but why can't? Well, I, I think it's the, for more or less the same reason why they wrote the Mishnah down. At this point, Jews are all over the place, speaking all different languages. There's no more such thing. There's no such thing as a centralized Jewish community. Good. So, if not, I mean, for the sake of uh, preserving it, they had to write. Okay, so let's let's move from there, the middle of that wall, to the middle of this wall. What's what's happening here? Babylon. Talk to me about Babylon. We're in the first exile, or Galut, right? The idea is that and they just came back. They've, oh, you're, you're talking about they just came back? Mm-hmm. Okay, so while in Babylon, it's, let me preface this with, you know, the sages believe that the Jews went into captivity for Babylon, into Babylon for a number of reasons, uh, the most prevalent of which seems to be that God just wanted his people to keep his commandments. Okay, let me now, let me stop him for just a second and make sure that everybody heard a little differently than what he just said. It's not that the sages said that. God said that. God said, "You want you don't want to keep my commandments? I'm kicking you out." And when can you come back? <laughs> Say it again. Until you keep all my commandments, even though there's some that you cannot keep when you're outside the land even though we know there's many that you cannot keep when you're a slave in a foreign land, until you keep all my commands. So the idea that, that they're slaves and you know, you're supposed to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year 
it's not likely that their Babylonian captors are going to let them leave to keep their religion. So the idea that they are supposed to be keeping as much as they are responsible for, as much as they are physically able to do, Amen. is what where God wanted their hearts to be. Okay, so now, tell me where we are physically right now. I'm not in captivity anymore. So okay, what's the situation? We are. We have been. The go-ahead to return has been issued, and only forty-two thousand have changed. Exactly. Just a, a, a fraction of the Jews that were exiled, uh, a paltry fraction of that fraction of that who were exiled, decide to go back to the land. Okay. Well, they've been inundated for the past seventy years with. Babylon. <laughs> so the idea is that we want to preserve, you know, what our forefathers and you know, all the way back to the mountain. We want to preserve that. So in order to keep some semblance of unity, there has to be some sort of code, some sort of standard, something. Written. All right. I think we're. I think you're ahead on that. But they're back, and they're back keeping the Torah with a vengeance because Absolutely. they. They were kicked out because they didn't keep the, the Torah. Yeah, so if if you yeah, I mean if if you if you want to look at anybody who's serious about keeping commandments now, it's these guys, right? Oh, we don't want to go back there again. Well, who knows who I'll send next time? I got three main players. Who are they? Ezra, Ezra. Nehemiah, Nehemiah. Zerubbabel, right? Zerubbabel. All right. So they are here. Is there a written code of Jewish law? There is not. He was the grandson of the last king who had his eyes poked out. Coming back, and actually, many of the people also lost the language. Many of them spoke Aramaic. Yes. Yes. So coming back, they had all of these commentaries, the Targums, right? Not yet. Okay. Right. That's where that's where we're starting, right? Okay. So we've got now Jewish population where on the planet. Babylon, Persia, Egypt, Egypt, and a little bit in Israel. And smatterings, a whole bunch of other places. Right. But mostly, you've got it in Babylon, Egypt, and Israel. But mostly, in Babylon, not anywhere. That's where the, that's where the greatest number are. Okay. So, again, we do not have written stuff. We've got the scrolls of the Torah. That's it. And we've got that oral passing down of tradition. Why do we need that? Well, there's several things that have been... You know, I, I like to use the example on explaining this of Zizi. When God says in Numbers 15 to wear them with a thread of blue on the corners of your garments... He doesn't say exactly how to tie them. He doesn't say, you know, th- these specifics. The, he says to do it. All the, the how-to, as it were, the instruction manual, that was, um, according to Jewish tradition and, you know, Pirkei Avot and everything, all of that was revealed to Moses at the same time as the written Torah. It was called, you know, we call that the oral Torah. And it was passed down, you know, father to son, Family member to family okay. member, community, you know, group in tribe to, to tribe member, and so on and so forth. So it wasn't really, you know, okay, you Danites, you know, you, you 
do this number of knots and you use this color thread and right. everything like that, this specific die, and then you know all the the conning, they would do it this way and everything like that. It's <coughs> there was no manual. It was it was very much just it was how it was lived out. It's okay, you're gonna learn this pretty much by existing in this community. It is passed down. So we've got the what written down and we've got the how being tra transferred orally. And, and this, is, this is interesting because you know, I know the tradition is, as it's laid down in Mishnah Pirkevot, that Moses received the written Torah and the oral Torah as well. Correct. Which to the extent that that's true, right, and you know, we can debate whether we think that's true or not, but to the extent that it is true, <coughs> then that means the oral Torah is also divine. If it came straight from the mouth of God. Of course. Right. Um, but as, as Gentiles raising the church, of course, we don't like to A, hear that, certainly yeah. not, or even think about it. Right. So, um, so the, the Mishnah, which of course we know was laid down in written form by Yehuda Hanasi in the first century common era. Judah the Prince. Uh, and when we read the Mishnah, you know, we see Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that, and the halakha is according to Rabbi so-and-so, right? I mean, that's it's a lot of that. It's almost all that. Right. And so, in the Mishnah is, is what is commonly referred to today as the oral Torah. So the thing is, that I struggled with with that was like, okay, wait a minute. If the Mishnah is supposed to be the oral Torah written down, then why is there this debate among the rabbis over, over what it is? Was God confused? Yeah. Did, did God actually say it so bad that they had to argue about it? Right. So, I have an old rabbi will remain nameless sitting in my kitchen table. And I say, Rabbi, help me understand this. Okay? You say that the oral Torah was given to Moses. Absolutely. The Mishnah is the oral Torah. Sure. Then why are the rabbis arguing over the... The interpretation. What, was, what God said. And was, you know, was God confused? Why? I mean, we don't see in the written Torah any debate over what God said. It's, mm -hmm. it's God said this. Thou shalt and speak to the children of Israel and say... So how... Help me understand this, okay? And the explanation that I got was very, very helpful. It was so cool. Okay. Because part of where I was going with, going with the question was authority, right? Where is this in the hierarchy of authority, right? Um, and the answer that I got was five books of Moses, that is the highest level of authority. The next level of authority is the Nevi'im. The next it's level of authority, authority is, is the Ketuvim. The writings. Okay. And we, then, we, would, we would throw in the other writings, the apostolic writings. Well, we would, yeah, we would. Right. The, then the oral Torah is fourth in the hierarchy of authority. Okay. So that was, that was refreshing, because when you listen to a lot of Orthodox Jews, you get this impression... Talmud's top shelf. ...that the oral Torah is, like, right there with 
written Torah and everything else, right? <clears throat> so it was comforting to me to understand that you know, that's not actually how Judaism really views it, even though sometimes it comes across to the contrary, mm -hmm. right? So I said, all right, well then help me understand. If, if I understand, okay, if, if Moses... If, if Moses, in fact, received both at the time, what, why did God say, okay, Moses, here's all the Torah, but only write this stuff down, don't write that stuff down. <laughs> right? And he only well, had two I'm tablets. Kind of being, I'm kind of being a little, I'm being a little sarcastic when I'm asking the question. This, this doesn't really make sense to me. Right? Yeah. But the answer I got was insightful. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'm still working through exactly where I stand with it, but it was insightful, so it was very useful. And the, the, the answer was, oh, well, that's easy. Because the, what is considered the oral Torah was never intended to be written down. It was to be passed orally. And Zitzit is, is a great example. And this particular Orthodox rabbi I had his Zitzit tucked in like I do, but he reaches in and kind of pulls out a Zitzit, right? And he says, have you ever tied Zitzit? Yes, I have. Okay. Well, can you imagine trying to trying to write down a description <laughs> of how to actually tie this Right? Okay, good point. And, and translated into four he different said, languages. It, right. <laughs> he said it, that type of thing was never intended to be narrated. It was intended to be demonstrated. demonstrated. Maybe the proof of that is the length of the Shulchan Aruch. Yeah. It's like how many chapters? Yeah. Right. So the oral Torah was exactly as Johnny just said. <laughs> the intention was that it was to be passed from father to son, father to son, father to son, and demonstrated. It was never intended to be written down. The reason when we get to the Mishnah, the reason when Yehud HaNasim lays it down in the Mishnah and we have this debate, the reason it's laid down that way is because by the time Yehuda decided to codify it, they were already beginning to forget it. And so what you have is the discussion. It was like this. No, 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 no. It was like this. And Yehuda had to write it down before they totally lost it. Okay. So the Orthodox rabbi said to me, the Mishnah is not what Moses received on the mountain. Hmm. The Orthodox, it's, it's an Orthodox. Yeah, the Orthodox the rabbi said Orthodox. the Mishnah is not what Moses received on the mountain. It is the... It, the it, it, it's, it's the... Oh, well, uh, he, sorry. He did sure. say the Mishnah we have today is not the Mishnah we received on the mountain. And just like how the, the people of Israel are in, in, in exile, so too our Torah is in exile with us. And it's not until she comes back that we... Uh, he will clarify those things that are the, you mean the oral Torah of the how yes the is that what he meant? yes so cool. except for him the term is you know, right. the same. so so that was that was an, a level of uh, explanation that I had never far beyond where we're normally at never heard yeah. before but it was very insightful and again whether you really agree with it or not is not the point the point is That's it was right. very insightful to understand you know, how they, how they view it, right? You bet, so, you bet. It's good stuff. I feel like those, those explanations are the parts that are only Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's make sure we're good on our, our time frames here. So here uh, on the wall, you know, we're at the mountain and the, mi the middle of this wall. The middle of this wall 
is the Babylonian captivity coming to an end. And now we want to keep that Torah that we heard about over there with a vengeance. We're to the point where Ezra stands up and reads the entire Torah out loud and we're all standing up listening. And uh, similar to being at the mountain. Over the next 500 years, um, we have some uh, very calm times that end in very tumultuous times, leading again to uh, some uh, burdens laid on us by the Romans and then the coming of the Mashiach. Um, But I want to make it clear that, as Greg was saying, father to son, rabbi to student, and so on, it is passed down. And if you're interested from Moses to Yehuda Hanasi in 200 of the Common Era, that's at the beginning of that wall, they can name every guy that it was passed down to. Like a chain of custody with evidence. From Moses, passed to Joshua. From Joshua, passed to, you know, you know they, yeah. And they'll just walk right through and tell you every single guy that it was passed down to, to be sort of the, the keeper of, you know, the, uh, the grail or whatever it is. But uh, um, it, is, it is an amazing thing. And then, of course, they're being kicked out of the land. We'll write it down. We're already starting to forget it. It's been some, some heavy time. We'll write it down. And then they talked about it. And when they talked about it, they, you've now got, the Mishnah, which is that uh, oral Torah as best as we can get it. And now when they talk about it and discuss it, about how to keep it now and how it applies and this and that, those discussions are called the Gemara. And if you take the Mishnah and you put the Gemara with it, we have what's called the Talmud. They did the discussions in two different places. In Yavni, that's called the Jerusalem Talmud. And in Babylon, that's called the Babylonian Talmud, and there you have it. They evidently were more long-winded in Babylon because the Babylonian Talmud is quite a bit longer. Exactly. I do want to make it uh, make it clear. Shulchan Aruch, by the way, means the set table. The set table. It is actually a compilation of three different works coming together to to create this. I'm going to read you one more passage again from the Shulchan Aruch. Uh, After the Chazan completes his repetition of the Shemone Yisrael prayer, he should recite silently the verse of Yihiyu Laratzon. May they find favor. Yihilaratzon. Yeah, or may they find favor. However, he need not take three steps back at the conclusion of the Chazarat Hashatz, as he relies on the three steps that he takes at the end of the Kaddish Shalem that he recites after Uvalet It's good to know if you're playing Kazan, like I do from time to time.
On public fast days, when there are at least ten people in the synagogue who are fasting and intend to complete the fast, the Chazan recites the Elenu. Answer us. Blessing in the Chazarat Hashats of Shacharit and Minka. The blessing is recited before the blessing of health and healing, Rafa Enu, which is heal us. So it's just how do you do everything, including how do you do the prayers? So the priest has saying you don't have to The Chazan doesn't have to because he's going to take three steps back in a few more paragraphs. Yeah, yeah. right before, you know, you do that, you, you back up to three steps because you started by doing three. So he's, they're saying, you don't have to back up at that point. So, you know, even, even the steps that you take in prayer are covered. So, all of the... Yes? Uh, the Tusefta is is after you know you're, 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 you've got the Babylonian Talmud complete by 500. Uh, the Tosefta are the uh, additions. Tosefta additions, um, they're in Aramaic uh, most of the time, and those are the additions or the commentary on the prophets uh, in Aramaic that are in the back end, uh, four, uh, 350 to 450. So uh, most of the uh, top shelf type. Uh, books that we have are there and then all the rest of the books we have as you said are here where the medieval writers are are trying to put stuff together because I mean okay let's see we can either do our jobs and be kicked out of this country or while we're doing this job we can also write some massive wonderful cool stuff about how far to tilt the um, mezuzah on the door you know um, that kind of thing. Uh, it was on the middle of this wall as the people are starting to leave Babylon and go in two directions, one into Europe and into, uh, across the top of Africa and into Spain, uh, that we've got, uh, and of course, uh, two major parties uh, come to play in here. First, of course, uh, Islam, and uh, second, uh, our buddies, the Karats. And um, your sitter, uh, the sitters are actually sitting on the shelf where the sitter was uh, uh, actually codified and put, put, to, uh, put to paper for us. All right? So now that we've, we've, we've talked for almost an hour on, on all that kind of stuff, um, <coughs> let, me, uh, let, me, let me make sure that you understand where I'm coming from before we discuss. If you want to argue that the oral Torah could not have been from God and that the Jews simply made it up, then you should find yourself on shaky ground as a believer in the apostolic writings because the very exact same argument for the validity of the apostolic writings over there is the same as the validity for the oral Torah coming here. It's the same exact argument. You've got a group of people that believe that this came from God and that it was written down and that this is what God told these men. Same deal. You can argue it all you want, but it is exactly the same argument. It's just coming from two different groups of people. The uh, passing down from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy. Did it really happen? It's not the point. The bottom line is that the people were trying to keep the commandments of God and they were trusting their sages, men of renown, to supply the answers for them of how do I do this? It says I should tie it. How do I tie it? 
It says that I should keep Shabbat. How do I keep Shabbat? I shouldn't go out of my place. How far can I go? I'm supposed to have a mikvah. The river is that far away. I'm allowed to go to the river or not. Today's Shabbat and so on. So we go down through the, the time frame and we get here and we have an amazing thing. We have the master living amongst his people and as far as we can tell we have a tremendous example of him keeping the vast majority of the oral Torah in his day-to-day walk. That should make us second guess, do I really want to just toss it and say it's a bunch of hooey, or worse, it was written by Jews? That, is, that would be very um, anti-Semitic. Question. At the end of the Babylonian exile, that's when uh, the Jews came out wanting to keep the Torah with the vengeance. Yes. Some of, some of them came out. Right, exactly. So can we liken that to with the Purushim, began to create these fence laws and what we see in the time of the master as originating from that desire? I would say it, it originated from that desire, but those fences were written long before the Prashim. I mean, we've got the, the Prashim pretty much starting here al- al- along with the Sadducees, right. you know, and they're pretty much um, toe-to-toe on their, uh, on their practice or halakha. It's, it's shortly after that that we see that there's, there's starting to be differences as the Sadducees are not wanting to look at the, the prophets. Their, their theology is differing and the afterlife and angels and stuff like that seems to be a problem. And, and yeah, the, uh, when you get down here and you've got uh, uh, Queen Salome and... and uh, and, and some of the, the other rulers at, in that day, that seems to be the, one of the biggest issues is which, which side of the camp are we going to be on? All right? So, all of that to say now, I believe, currently, <laughs> that we should keep the commandments of God. I think we all agree. We all agree? We all agree. So now the question comes down to how do I do that? How do I walk it out? And I think, and I'm going to make this very simplistic to make my point, bear with me, hear me out. I think we have two main choices. Choice number one, I can follow the faith of my fathers who have inherited lies from their fathers and can look at what Gentiles have done and try and add commandments in that they weren't thinking applied and do the best I can to come up with the answers of how on my own or from the Gentile side of our faith. That would be one way to do it. The other way to do it might be to look at what the sages of Israel have been teaching since time immemorial, see how it's been changed, perhaps corrupted, over time, and try, as at least currently I try to do, to go back as far as I can to perhaps a purer time before some halakhic changes and theological changes were made in response or reaction to 
the advent of Gentile Christianity. So I think those are the two main ways that I can walk out my faith. But of course, there's a third way, as there always is. I can paddle my own canoe. I can forsake the Gentiles, thinking that they were just stupid. I can forsake the Jews because they missed Messiah. What could they know? And after all, they're Jews, right? (laughs) And I can just decide, step by step, all 613 commands, exactly how I'm going to keep them. What does this remind you of? Every man is doing what is right in his own eyes. Didn't work out well the last time. The whole book of Judges, it says it over and over and over again. So, my premise going into this conversation is, I can choose the Gentile method. I can choose the Jewish method. And again, take into into account, in both cases, we've had problems and changes between Catholicism, Protestantism, Reformations, all that, as well as the advent of Christianity. So I want to go back as early as I can to the earliest sources. So those are my two main choices, or I can choose on my own. So here's the question I have. If you want to discount out of hand my doing it on my own, trusting in my own wisdom, (laughs) pride comes before the fall, I could keep going, but we'll just toss us individually out of the mix. I've got pretty much two sides to look at. So... In my life, today, I'm going to look first at the scripture, see how it lays out. What does it say I should do? Now, what way do I walk that out? And the discussion then would be, whichever side I choose, where do I know when to draw the line? Okay? So you should have an idea of where I'm coming from, and that should pose it, and we'll make it very quick. Yes, sir? Well, one of the cool points that I've come across is that, yes, you know, hearing the way the rabbis inter- interpret certain halakha, <coughs> and this is how we do this, this is how we do that, you know, the traditions of the rabbis, as you know, one may put it, um, the idea is not that this is the 100% most accurate 100, this is the right answer for it but to avoid kind of like you were talking about our own uh, sort of reinventing of the wheel and you know totally missing the point whatever the risks we run trying to come up with our own halakha the idea that I think a lot of us kind of subscribe to is that okay this may not be what they did in the time of Moses but this is what greater Israel has been doing for how many hundreds of years. And you know, while this may not be exactly what it was prior to Babylon, you know, or, mm-hmm. or, or up mm-hmm. to the Master's Day, or even at the mountain, whatever the case may be, you pick your timeline, your, your marker, the idea is that it's kind of the best thing we have. Precisely, Johnny, and that's exactly where I would start, is... If I'm going to choose one side or the other, which side has, by and large, forsaken the Torah? That leaves me with not many choices. So the question is not, should I go this route, but how far down this route do I go? So I like the first baseline premise, and that being, 
if I follow them hook, line, and sinker, and it doesn't violate the scripture, am I going to go wrong? And I think, instead of asking, as most of the people in the church do, what's wrong with that? Why would I do that? I'm going to ask, why wouldn't I do that? It seems to fit. Was it a comment on this side? Yes? No? I know there's one of you on this side. One thing is the second avenue that we that I continue to follow with it. Um, I like the idea of using Judaism as a baseline and um, considering that to be a very good starting point to begin this, as opposed to saying, I'll create my own thing and we'll start from there. Um, although at the same time, I, th- I guess for me personally and right now, um, it's, it's been more of a, a way of saying, okay, this is what Judaism does with this. Do I see a backing for that scripturally that I'm comfortable with, or does it appear to be a halakhic extension, and does that potentially cause problems for me? Um, as an example, you can look at Rabbi Pesach. If you are Ashkenazi, you will be eating a lot less than your Sephardi friends during Pesach. Hence, there is room, I think, within Judaism to, to have the same baseline, to have some sometimes very differing perceptions on what the halakha is. Well, you know, you've, you've raised an excellent point, and it helps me to segue into the Shulchan Aruch. How is it that Judaism, by and large, looks generically the same from afar? How is it that they are all going to keep Pesach, and they're all going to get on the Orthodox side, whether Ashkenazi or Sephardic or Yemenite or whatever it may be, they're all going to get rid of the Chametz. Right? They're all going to keep Pesach. It's all going to be seven days long. It's going to happen. How is it that there's such a commonality? They get the Code of Jewish Law, and that's, quote-unquote, the red-letter book on exactly what the bottom line is. But that says what? And how specifically from a, an Ashkenazi perspective versus a Sephardic perspective, you've got both of them, but there is a, a law to it, if you will. So, to pick up on that comment and the observation you made, you're exactly right. Or, orthodox Judaism in its different camps and different communities, right? That is halakha. That's it. That's the halakha. There is no other halakha. That's why uh, Ashkenazi don't look at Sephardic who don't have the minhag, because what you're talking about is a minhag. Minhag is, minhag is custom. But halakha is not halakha. Right. That's halakha. That's why the Ashkenazi Jew doesn't look at Sephardic Jew and say, you're not kosher, you've got, you've got beans in your house. Well, actually, maybe on that particular point, but there is some actually very strong division to the point of, of at least concern about teaching. Like, Ashkenazis will not necessarily let their children go to Sephardi school. Because oh, no, of course not. Wrong way. So, but I mean, but there's, it's... There's a very clear distinction. That there's no... There's, evil of that. Just there's no question that there's a distinction. But they all agree that they're all the same family and they're all Orthodox. Orthodox Sephardis, right? Orthodox Sephardi call Orthodox Ashkenazis Orthodox. Right. Well, I mean, just as another example, besides the Pesach one, I mean, look at the Orthodox dress code. 
if you are Haredi, you dress one way. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not orthodox. Okay, so we, we got orthodox. If we go beyond orthodox, all bets are off, and that's not where we're at right now. You've got the black, you've got the black and white. Then you've also got the, um, the quote-unquote modern orthodox, or what was the term? The, the Dati in Hebrew is the simplest way probably to put it, um, who, you know, live <coughs> Judea and Samaria, who are dressing, you know, basically like us, with tzitzit and kippah. But again. But, but the black hat people don't look at the ones in Judea and Samaria and say they're not Orthodox Jews. And nowhere in there does it say you've got to wear a black hat. Because that's so Minhag, not Halakha. We can't confuse Minhagim. Well, Minhagim min, min may carry the weight of halakha in that particular community, it's, it's still, at the end of the day, not halakha. That's the halakha <coughs> for everybody. That's, that's the baseline. Minhaim or individual uh, uh, humra, like I may have an individual humra that says, you know what, um, I don't wear red shoelaces. Well, the better, you take it like in, in this community, a common minhaim are these hats everyone keeps well, you mean the cool hats <laughs> that everyone keeps wearing? That's exactly right. That's a, it's a it's become a minhag that we wear those those cool hats. We, we have a we have a, a humrah in our home that on Shabbat after we sing Berakah Hamazon, we sing If you're at our table on Shabbat. After we do the berkha, after we read through the berkha hamazon, we end with singing that. That's our individual family. Minhag. Minhag. Now, I would love to the see. Has right. I would love to see that as we spend more and more time together, and I don't mean us, I mean our families, that the minhag from one family starts to rub off on another family, and all of a sudden. It doesn't matter where you go, everybody's singing that same song. Why? Because they sing that song. That's exactly what happened in the Master's Day. That's what happened. Come on, come on. Teach us to pray. Teach you to pray? What do you mean? You don't know how to pray? Let's do shakarit. That's not what they were asking. Teach us to pray the way you pray, so that when I pray, they know that I pray with you. Teach me your minhag. Exactly. And, and, and so I think it's important to make the distinction between minhagim and halakha. Even though, granted, in a community, the minhagim can have a similar weighting. As oh, sure. But, but that, and, and, and I would say it shouldn't. Visiting a, new, a, a different community. And when they pray, you know, when they stand up to pray the Shema, they turn a certain way. Even if they didn't turn east, you turn with them. face whatever way that community faces. Yep. Because that's the men in that community. Peter went uh, with uh, Gregory to, uh, to listen to Daniel Lappin at uh, the Chabad house. And guess what? They don't daven the way we do. They daven like this. You know? It's minhag. It's not halakha. Comment. Uh, I think a large part of it is that you know we're, we're growing in richness and tradition together. And you know, one, one of my little things that I've done is that after Shabbat is over, I like to go buy something just to say, yeah, now it's 
try to do that. And it, it's very much an identifying marker of, of family and beliefs. And sort of the addendum that I was going to put on to my original statement is that we know where we stand so strongly that it's a filter through which everything can pass and say, okay, we're only letting this much stuff through. Does this line up with the apostolic scriptures? Does this line up with the master? Does this line up directly with the Torah? It's the same way, the same way with, um, you know, Kabbalistic and mystical writings and things like that. Do we accept everything in there as you know, valuable? Of course not. There's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't line up with the apostolic writings. Is there some stuff that we can, you know, use to learn from and 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 kind of glean from the knowledge and, and, and wisdom of these sages who have devoted their lives to studying God's word? Absolutely. But the idea is that we know where we we stand so firmly with with, with our with, with scripture and our relationship with God and what it says in, in our beliefs that we are able to just just quickly, you know, just immediately know, okay, that's acceptable, that's not. Yeah, I that's Making that judgment call is what this is about, and I don't think it's as clear as you're implying, um, because I think if what you're saying, if I understand what you're saying, if it violates the scripture, we're tossing that, and it's quick and easy to do that. The question is, not when it violates the scripture, it's when it's complementary to the scripture, do we do it? And I would... I would Exactly. Sure, which, exactly which means which yes. means it's complementary. So, I guess. Yeah, exactly. He's got the he's got the uh, the questions to walk through. So here's here's the question you know to wrestle with. I think, and that is, is there is there a problem if you were to live by this? Would it be a problem? I'm sorry? I would say, would you kind of go as far as to say, it's not a problem to live by that, but if you place that over something else? I'm not, I'm not saying put it over something. Okay. I'm saying that, as I said earlier, if the scripture, if, if contradicting the scripture is my only watchword, if it doesn't contradict the scripture, would there be a problem with me living by everything in this Shulchan Aruch? Not necessarily. It doesn't contradict. That would be a contradiction, right? Okay, so again, let me let me because uh, I think this goes to the heart of the question. <laughs> because if there's nothing wrong with living all of this out, so far as it does not violate the scripture, then I would say that your faith might begin to look an awful lot like Orthodox Judaism, and I don't know if that would be a bad thing. Or, or book. The, or book. The, you know, we are, you know, we're enjoined to be Boreans, as it were. So we are to 
vets everything against the scripture. Amen. That's our responsibility. We cannot absolve or uh, or abdicate that to somebody else. Period. And, you know, I've done that before. And it doesn't work out well. <laughs> so, so that you know, so that's kind of one point, right? Uh, the other thing too is, and I was talking with Ken about, about this a little bit earlier. Right? What I'm what I'm starting to see is. Um, and having had a lot of discussion and thought about this in the last several weeks, Judaism agrees on the halakha that it's that. Menhagim, very community to community. But by and large, they agree on the halakha. Now, the agadic, or the more theological, or spiritual, or mystical, and you know, understandings of scripture <coughs> all over the board. You know? and, and several different boards. Right. But, but they all keep the same halakha. That's right. So the halakha is not not really theology. The halakha is the more of the the um, you know, the practical the, working the out. practical working out of how to keep a particular command day-to-day. Exactly. It's not primarily a theological No, not, not at all. Not at all. Right. So, which is why you can have lots of different theological views within Orthodox Judaism, but they're all going to separate me and Derek. Exactly. That's the Halakha. Exactly. That the community is all agreed to. Yeah. yeah. If, so, you, if you read through the Talmud, you go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth in all these discussions, and everybody comes down to this was a discussion about it. You know, right? Well, the minute you have, oh man, you know. Or even just the art school from us. I mean, Rashi. Yeah, he says this, and no, he says no, he's got it wrong, and this guy's got it right. But so now, but this is how we do it. We all agree what we have to do, and this is how we do it. That's what this is all about. That's what this book is about. Uh, in you know one common example, right? I mean, there's the commandment to sanctify the Sabbath. I think I'll, I'll step out on a limb here. Uh, I think it's true because I think I've been in most of your homes at least once on Arab Shabbat. Uh, we all light candles to to delineate the Shabbat from the rest, mm-hmm. of them, right? And then light that's, another one when we're a, done. That's halakha according to Orthodox Judaism. Amen. There's nothing in the written Torah that says to do that. That's right. But yet we all do it. Why do we all do it? The blessing even says because it's a, because it's it's a beautiful tradition. It 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 accomplishes the purpose and the intent of the command. And helps me teach my kids that helps command. Helps me teach my kids. And why would we want to reinvent the right wheel? Exactly. Know? So I think uh, you know <coughs> come up with some brand new way to make that delineation. I could decide that. that Sundown, I'm gonna blow a trumpet. Stand, stand on my head, and, <laughs> or whatever, right? You know. Balance your shoe on your head. Exactly. But red laces. So that's right. So I, I think that. Uh, so anyway, I think the point I'm trying to make is no, we cannot blindly follow anybody. We have we have a responsibility before God and, and, for, and as leaders of our families that we have to vet. Everything. Amen. But by the same token, uh, uh, we the the, the halakha the is the halakha. It's not necessarily 
theology. Exactly. Right? I'm not. I'm not looking to Orthodox Judaism for an understanding of uh, of how to you know of, of how to get saved necessarily. Right. Right. Uh, or or what Yom Kippur is all about. I mean, it's a theological question. But the bottom line, and you know, to your point is, if uh, if I want to, if I agree that there are, Maimonides, the Rambam, said, I've gone through it all, there's 613 commands. How many are positive? 248. 248 equal to the number of bones in the body. And how many are negative? 365. The number... The number of days in the year, right? So my body every day can choose to do or not do his commands. So if I get 613 commands, it sounds like everybody agrees there's 613 commands. It's just, I guess, what the 613th one really is. Whether it's doing this or not doing that and whatnot. But I would say, out of 613, guys... Some only apply to women. Some only apply to, to priests. There's not that many. And if you agree on all but the one about separation, one has to question, how are you keeping each one of those commands? And that's a great thing. One, then one, then one, then we're done, because everybody's going to fall asleep. I guess about a year ago, maybe not that long, uh, maybe about nine months ago, I, I read A.J. Jacobs' book, The Year of the Biblically, and... I was a little skeptical of it at first because you know he's a non-religious, uh, he's actually atheist Jew himself, and he takes on this daunting task of of trying to live a year according to the Bible extremely scrupulously. Okay, so we're talking the six thirteen, the whole deal, you know, in every literal meaning of the passages. So, you know, he's reading and studying as he goes along. So, the more he's, okay, you, you hear him start talking about the tassels and everything, you know, the tzitzit and everything like that, so he pins these things on his shirt, and, and, and then he's like, man, this is just crummy. You know, I see how these guys are doing, I'm just going to do it like they do. You know, this whole reinventing the will versus greater Israel thing. So that's that's one really cool parallel that I've seen to our discussion tonight. Um, really cool books and a lot of laugh out loud moments in it as well. Um, second, um, which brings me to a comment that I never got to make earlier about the least of the commandments. That's where I was going to go with that. The whole shooting the mother bird away before you take the egg. Apparently that's a very rare mitzvah that you have the opportunity to keep. That's right. And he actually had the opportunity to do that in the book. And it was really cool talking <laughs> about how this, um, all these, these loving rabbis who kind of take them, take him under their wing and kind of coach him and say, well, this is why you want to do this. This is why you don't want to do this. And, you know, talking about how, you know, what he finds in prayer and, and in a relationship with God that he's trying to have and everything, uh, very sincerely, I think, I, you know, from, from my uh, reading of the book as well, um, it, it's, it really gets to the heart of this whole discussion that we've been talking about, though, and, and I, I, I want to recommend 
you know, you read it, it's, it's a very easy read. Um, but I was particularly impressed with some of the, um, the concepts and the timeline and the dates and stuff like that he would, he would talk about. You know, when, when, I, when I first, you know, the first year of the class, we're going through the history and the timeline and everything like that. It's like, who knows this stuff? This is all just like extremely obscure knowledge and everything like that. I'm just soaking it up like a sponge. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, I know that. I know that and everything like that, and it's all because of my study, all because of attending here in class and everything. So, my second point and kind of pitch for the book would be that it will kind of reinforce what we've seen in the last couple of years. So, um, but it, it just gets right to the heart of this matter. You know, the guy is, you know, literally with a sharpie going around his doorposts writing the Ten Commandments. Actually, uh, you know, Rick Spurlock wrote exactly. his, uh, the Shema. Exactly. His, yeah. you, know, the, the, you know, then he's like, okay, do I keep that? And, you know, the, the neighbor's dogs are getting kind of right. antsy when I try to put the, you know, some kind of blood or lamb juice or something on my doorpost and stuff like that. And they're always sniffing my door and Name of the causing book. problems and stuff like that. So he's, uh, it's called The Year of Living Biblically Year of by Living A.J. Biblically. Jacobs. I just want to say, unfortunately, historically, we don't have any of the twelve or Shaul quoted in Talmud. <laughs> but I do want to say that we do have the apostolic writings, and we see places where Shaul is <coughs> giving halakha. He says, "This is me, Paul, not the Lord." You know, in a certain uh, yeah, that would that would be minhag, so, not halakha. See, like meat sacrificed to idols. That would be minhag, not halakha, right? He's, when, when he says, this is me, when he says, this is me, not the Lord. Yeah, and then, yeah, because he closes it with, because we have no such custom yeah. in yeah. yeah. Uh, but I do think it's important. And For us to search I, out. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to discount the, the Mishnah or the Talmud simply because Paul's not noted in there. I, no, I think that's, that's a... That's what I'm no. saying. What I'm but saying I, is I... I but to lift up the apostolic scriptures, have, absolutely. But I do think it's important to note that Paul made it clear that they were listening to, and he was pleased, that they were keeping the traditions that he had, that, that he had delivered to them. You betcha. You betcha. All right, we got to go. Final comment. So the last, which to me is really part of, uh, we, we kind of touched around the peripheral here, but... This quasi-elephant in the room here, which we, we can't get into tonight because we're out of time, but I think we should plan on getting into it, is the whole concept of rabbinic authority. And because what we're really talking about is who has the authority to define the halakha, and what does that, what place does that authority have in our life? As believers, and and where is this? Where's the biblical basis for that, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. So, All right. So, that, that so next week's that we're kind of talking about. That's exactly right. So next week, that was actually supposed to, what we're supposed to be talking about tonight. Next week's class, we open with who has the authority to make halakha, not minhag, but halakha. And what is the middle wall of partition? And what is the middle wall of partition? Okay. We'll, uh, yeah, that's, that'll have to be the second hour. All right, let's... Uh, Good discussion, man. It was indeed. Um, let me close this in prayer.
Avinu Makinu, our Father and our King, we thank you so much that uh, you did, through your people, preserve the Word of God for us. You sent your Son, the Messiah Yeshua. And Father, throughout the uh, 2,000 years since he was here, um, as the sages teach, Messiah has been ex- in exile with his people. And we wait and yearn for his soon return. May he come quickly and in our days, and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Jesse.